Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Harbin here with you. Let's talk seriously about exactly what the options are for our country or any country when it comes to this coronavirus. Donald Trump has now said that uh, if governors have their states shut down, he can force them to open. He tweeted this. He said, for the purpose of creating conflict and confusion, some of the fake news media are saying that it's the governor's decision to open up the states, not the president of the United States. He said, let it be fully understood that this is incorrect. So Trump says he can reopen the country. What's that all about? What's going on here? What does this have to do with public health? Let's be very clear. There are basically three ways that a government can deal with this stuff. The first is what the British health minister was advocating just a few weeks ago. And what Donald Trump has apparently been advocating inside the White House. And that is just let the virus burn through the population. We talked about this on Friday, the whole herd immunity thing. Let the virus just burn through the population Kill off the old, the weak, the obese, the hypertensive, the heart patients. Kill them all off. And then you've got a strong, healthy, and immune workforce, and you can go back to work, and you can, and you can compete against the rest of the planet. And while you're doing that, the older, rich folks, Donald Trump, the, you know, Charles Koch, <laughs> Robert Mercer, I mean, pick your billionaire, right? They, they can hide out in their own private home where they've got their own greenhouse and they've got their own food and they've got their own little guard, you know, private guards and cooks who all live there and so they're not exposed to the outside world. And they can just like shelter in place until there's a vaccine. So that's number one, burn through and kill lots and lots of people. The problem with that strategy, by the way, this from Christina Cabrera over a Talking Points memo. President Donald Trump reportedly has been privately suggesting an eyebrow-raising solution. Let the virus keep burning through America. Trump asked the White House Corona Task Force, he asked Anthony Fauci, this was in March, just a few weeks ago, he said, why don't we just let this wash over the country? And according to the reporters, who heard from two different people who were in the room when this happened, Fauci was, quote, stunned, end quote, by the question. He told Trump, Mr. President, many people would die. This would result in one to two million deaths in the United States, and it would happen over a short period of time, and so it would overwhelm the hospitals. Which brings us to strategy number two, which is called mitigation which is where we're at now in all but one of the states in the United States. Well, actually, we're not even not even all the states because you've still got eight Republican-controlled states that are doing absolutely nothing. So they're in the let it burn through the country mode, right? The Republican-controlled states. But the mitigation says we're going to let it burn through the country. 
And we're going to let hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people over a period of years die. But we're going to release people out of quarantine in little dribs and drabs slowly so that we don't overwhelm our healthcare system. Let's be very clear about this. The mitigation strategy only saves lives in as much as it keeps our hospitals open and not overwhelmed so they can deal with heart attacks and cancer and strokes and car accidents and other things, you know, other things that frankly some of these hospitals can't deal with right now because they're overwhelmed with coronavirus. So the mitigation strategy, which is being officially pursued by the Trump administration, is really just slowly let people up. And yeah, some of them will die, but they're going to die at a slow rate. Rather than having a thousand people hit the emergency room all at once, that same thousand people are going to get so sick that they need an emergency room. But we're going to do it a hundred of them this week, a hundred of them next week, a hundred of them the week after that. And this is the debate, the dis- this is the principal discussion we're having in the United States. And this is how it's emerging. Is how do we start, how do we quote, restart the economy? In other words, how do we use the mitigation strategy to slowly infect as many people as possible so that we don't overwhelm our hospitals and we end up with herd immunity? That's mitigation. And, you know, one of the things that's under discussion is let people under 30 go back to work. Now, it kind of misses the fact that most people under 30 know somebody over 60, but nonetheless. Or a lot of people under 30 have heart disease or are obese, you know, a third of our population. But, you know, again, this is, you know, you let the people under 30 out and a smaller percentage of them are going to end up in the ER and a lot of them are going to get sick. And so you're going to have some herd immunity in the under 30s. And then once all the under 30s are infected, then you let the under 40s out of quarantine and you infect them. And maybe the, uh, you know, over 50 and over 60s, those folks who have really, really high death rates, we'll just leave them in quarantine indefinitely until there's a vaccine. So which creates job opportunities for younger people. So that's the mitigation strategy that is more or less the official policy of the United States government. And that Trump is threatening to basically impose on governors. I can unlock your state whenever I want. The third strategy, which Australia is debating right now, which South Korea put into place back in January, that Taiwan put into place back in January, that China put into place back in December, well, in in early January, actually, that Germany and Denmark and Norway, this third strategy is called containment. And containment is where you do aggressive testing throughout your population. And then whenever you find people who are sick, you do contact tracing. This is what we did with sexually transmitted diseases back in the 60s and 70s. I guess we still do it. Public health departments, you present with an STD and they want to know who you had sex with. We still do it with HIV. And so that's actually where you just say, we're not going to allow this virus to spread anymore in our state. And once you've got that under control, once you've got that locked down, once every time a little hotspot pops up, you step on it, you've got containment. And you can put your workforce back to work. Now, Charlie Baker, the Republican governor of Massachusetts, has just put this into place. It's not going to take effect until the end of the week. He's trying to, quote, leverage public health students. He's creating a network. He's got over a thousand people so far that they have essentially hired. These are contact tracers. They will work from their homes. You don't have to knock on somebody's door. You can call them on the phone or send them an email. But when somebody is diagnosed, he's trying to do 5,000 tests a day right now. In fact, on Friday, they conducted 5,000 tests in Massachusetts. They're shooting for a much higher number than that eventually. But basically, they want to test everybody in Massachusetts. And then anytime somebody turns up positive, you ask them, okay, who have you been in contact with over the last month? Well, I went to the supermarket. Then you contact the supermarket. Who who went shopping in the supermarket? Who are the checkout clerks? 
and you do that. Those are our three options. Let it burn through and create herd immunity. Let it slowly burn through and create herd immunity. Or lock it down and have containment. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And what I find most astonishing is the lock it down and have containment, like they're doing in Singapore right now, is never discussed in the American media. Most people don't realize that there are these three options. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? Tom, good day to you, sir. I hope you and your crew are safe. I have a lot of jokes in uh, these hard times. And the joke goes like, I guess you can't kill a, a coronavirus by an F-16. And, right. and, the pur- right. and the purpose of that joke, I hope every all these countries learn that investing money in all these military equipment, you know, not investing on healthcare. I hope they learn their lesson. And what I wanted to uh, just talk about, I think the next hot spot is going to be the third world countries. Because over the weekend, oh, yeah. I wrote an article in the Financial Times that... A lot of uh, like countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, some of these migrant workers that they were using to build stadium for the 2020 World Cup and on all these skyscrapers, they've been shipping them back to these countries where they came from. I mean, these are the people right. who were under They're expelling very them. difficult. Yeah, exactly. And they, they've been under very difficult situation. They hold their passport. They've been paying minimum wages, and now they don't need them. They send them, they pretty much shipping them back to Ethiopia, Bangladesh, to a lot of these countries that are not going to be able to handle the coronavirus. And I think the United Nations need to step in and halt the deportation of any person who's with coronavirus. They have to be treated. And the fact that you yeah, use I, them when you want them and you ship it back when you don't need them is really criminal. I agree with your sentiment, Omar. And obviously the reason why the Saudis are shipping them out is because Saudi Arabia has a massive problem right now with coronavirus outbreak that's burning through the royal family. And, you know, some of these people actually work as servants to the royal family as well. And because the workers not only are they low paid, but they live in dormitories. I mean, they live in squalor and poverty, you know, 20 people to a room. And so it's burning through that community of so-called guest workers. And that's why they're expelling them. They're expelling them because they're widely, massively infected with coronavirus. And the Saudis don't want that reservoir of coronavirus in their country any longer, which they created. But the problem, you know, and I agree with your sentiment, as I said, Omar, but the problem is the U.N. does not have the power to stop a country from deporting people. If they did, I think that they would be talking to Donald Trump about deporting, uh, you know, people here. Yes, I agree with you. There has to be action because these countries cannot support an outbreak. You know, Ethiopia cannot support an outbreak. Bangladesh cannot support an outbreak. And that's what concerns me. Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. And it's going to overwhelm them. And you ain't seen nothing yet, right? We're looking at New York and everybody's like, oh, New York. And oh, New York's an anomaly. Wait till it hits Wichita, Kansas. You know, wait till it hits. I mean, pick your city, your your red state city. Richard in Pasadena. Hey, Richard, what's up? What's up is the courage that you spoke of with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt last weekend. Same with um, Katrina Van Halen saying that we need to care for each other. We need the courage to do some committed action. And the committed action we need to do first is recognize that we can rid ourselves of Donald Trump and Michael Pence, but it's gonna take we the people to do it and recognize that November is a last resort. Yes, we'll do it then, but we need to do it now. We need to lift these sanctions on Iran. We need to lift the sanctions. We need to join the world community and kicking the butt on this virus. I'm with you, Richard. I'm absolutely with you. Thank you. So in our latest video from over at TomHartman.com, you'll find a riff about a fellow named Errol Graham. He's a 57-year-old African-English individual who starved to death recently in the United Kingdom. The neoliberal Thatcher policies are apparently echoing through the British system now in a rather substantial way, the same way that Reaganomics is echoing through the American system. And we've got tens of thousands of Americans who die every year because they lack health care or they can't afford co-pays and things. And we have literally millions of children in America who are malnourished or even go to bed hungry every night. It's pretty breathtaking stuff. And I think you'll find the rant 
particularly interesting or useful and hope you can share it with your friends so when you pick it up. It's over at TomHartman.com. Thanks again. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So this morning, Governor Cuomo was speaking about moving forward. We've got to figure out a way to get out of this, but really we can't do anything until there's a vaccine. Why is he not talking about containment? Tom asks rhetorically. Well, the reason why he's not talking about containment is because it's too late for New York City to do containment. There's too many people infected. It's certainly too late for downstate New York to talk about containment. Upstate New York, probably they would have no problem talking about containment. But downstate New York, no chance, number one. Number two, for containment to work, and this is where, you know, Charlie Baker, the Republican governor of Massachusetts, is taking a huge chance here, in part because, you know, the virus does not respect state borders. And you can't lock down a state, and there aren't state patrols at the borders. But Charlie Baker is trying to get enough test kits to do enough testing. And he's enlisted this group of a thousand public college health students to try to do contact tracing and try to contain this thing. So that you might end up with cities in Massachusetts where there's literally no coronavirus. And they can go back to normal until somebody shows up who's sick. Now, that's going to be tough. And it may require China-like draconian measures where they literally, you know, if somebody violates the order, they drag them off, which probably should have been done for weeks with some of these right-wing churches that refuse to preach the teachings of Jesus and instead of preaching the teachings of Trump. But in any case, that's what it's going to take if we're going to do containment. And there's large parts of the United States where containment would still be possible. You could probably do containment right now in Kansas and in Wyoming and any place you don't have a major outbreak already. Now, here's the problem. There are, right now, when you look at New Orleans and you say, oh my God, there's a major outbreak in New Orleans. They've overwhelmed the hospitals. It's a total mess. Well, that major outbreak reflects exposures that had happened three and four weeks ago. Well, between two and four weeks ago. You got basically two weeks from the time you're exposed until the time you're sick. And then you got basically a week from the time you get sick until you get so sick you need to go to the hospitals. That's three weeks. And then from the time you go to the hospital until the time you either get out of the hospital or become a death statistic, that's another week or two. So the entire process is like three to five weeks. So what we're looking at in New Orleans right now, what we're looking at in New York City right now, is not what happened last week or the week before. It's what happened three, four, five weeks ago. So if we're going to try and do containment in the United States, and we're going to base it on, okay, we've got a place where the coronavirus hasn't really exploded yet. All we know is that it hasn't really exploded yet three weeks ago. But what's happened in the meantime? I mean, keep in mind, in New York, it was a birthday party and a religious event. In New Orleans, it was Mardi Gras. In Florida, it'll be spring break. So it's a matter of tracking it down. Now, all of this comes in the context of this incredible New York Times report that was published over the weekend that blow by blow by blow details all the times literally going back to November of last year and then December of last year and then January of this year and then February of this year and then March of this year when Donald Trump was warned, when they begged with him, when they pleaded with him, when a bunch of scientists uh, you know, operating under you know, this email chain that they called Red Dawn, reference to the old Tom Clancy movie with Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen in it. It's just amazing. They were laying all this stuff out. And last week, I wrote a note on, I've got some note cards that have my name on them. And it says, Dear Postal Person, thanks so much for showing up in these difficult times. You are appreciated. And I signed it, Tom and Louise. And my mailman wrote, You're welcome, Mailman Don, on it. And, you know, I put it in the outgoing mailbox. He put it in my box on Saturday. So, good on you, Don. And, uh, you know, there's just so much going on. But we'll pick up your calls after the break. This is our national uh, uh, support group. You're to the Tom well. Hartman Program. We'll 
Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from... The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great, by Professor Harvey J. Kay, who's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. This is from the introduction, page one. We need to remember. We need to remember what conservatives have never wanted us to remember and what liberals have all too often forgotten. Now, after more than 30 years of subordinating the public good to corporate priorities and private greed, of subjecting ourselves to widening inequality and intensifying insecurities, and of denying our democratic impulses and yearnings, we need to remember. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who rescued the United States from the economic destruction of the Great Depression and defended it against fascism and imperialism in the Second World War. We need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who not only saved the nation from economic ruin and political oblivion, but also turned it into the strongest and most prosperous country on earth. And most of all, we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the men and women who accomplished all that in the face of powerful, conservative, reactionary, and corporate opposition, and despite all their own faults and failings by making America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. 
Now, when all they fought for is under siege and we, too, find ourselves confronting crises and forces that threaten the nation and all that it stands for, now we need to remember that we are the children and grandchildren of the most progressive generation in American history. We are the children of the men and women who articulated, fought for, and endowed us with the promise of the four freedoms. On the afternoon of January 6, 1941, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt went up to Capitol Hill to deliver his annual message to Congress. This weeks earlier, he had defeated the Republican Wendell Wilkie at the polls and won re-election to an unprecedented third term. But Roosevelt now faced a far greater challenge, one even more daunting than those he confronted in his first and second terms. Still stalked by the Great Depression, the United States was also increasingly threatened by the Axis power, Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy, Imperial Japan. And with war already raging East and West, Americans had yet to agree about how to respond to the danger. The president, however, did not falter. He not only proceeded to propose measures to address the emergency, he gave dramatic new meaning to all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, the people of the United States, a new birth of freedom and government of the people by the people and for the people. FDR knew about crises, but he knew as well what Americans could accomplish even in the darkest of times. Born in 1882, he had grown up privileged, the son of New York Hudson River Gentry. Yet long before becoming president, he had suffered serious defeats and setbacks, none more devastating than contracting polio in 1921 at the age of 39. The disease left him permanently unable to stand up or walk without assistance. However, supported by his wife Eleanor and other family members and friends, he had risen above the paralysis to become the most dynamic political figure in the United States. Moreover, his experiences and encounters in the course of doing so had reaffirmed and deepened his already powerful faith and confidence in God, in himself, and in his fellow citizens, all of which had enabled him, in the face of the worst economic and social catastrophe in the nation's history, to defiantly state that, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And then go on to proclaim this generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. Armed with this faith and confidence and propelled by the popular energies that his words and elections elicited, he determinedly pursued the initiatives of relief, recovery, reconstruction, and reform known as the New Deal. Together, president and people severely tested each other, made mistakes and regrettable compromises, and suffered defeats and disappointments. Nevertheless, challenging each other to live up to their finest ideals, Roosevelt and his fellow citizens advanced them further than either had expected or even imagined possible. Confronting fierce conservative reactionary and corporate opposition, they not only rejected authoritarianism, but also redeemed the nation's historic purpose and promise by initiating revolutionary changes in American government and public life and radically extending American freedom, equality, and democracy. They subjected big business to public account and regulation, empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions, fought for their rights, broadened and leveled the we and we the people, established a social security system, expanded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, cultivated the arts, and refashioned popular culture. And while much remained to be done, they imbued themselves with fresh democratic convictions, hopes, and aspirations. Standing before the American people and their assembled representatives that early January day, the president surely believed their rendezvous with destiny had come. He told them straightforwardly that Americans were now confronting a moment unprecedented in the history of the United States. A moment unprecedented because never before had American security been as seriously threatened from without. And he refused to appease those who threatened our nation's safety. The book is The Fight for the Four Freedoms by Harvey King. Coming up on this week's Science Revolution is Zach Corrigan with Food and Water Watch. Could another zoonotic pandemic be coming? 
Thomas Lindsay with the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights is here on the rights of nature and how they may have kept Pennsylvania from industry harm. And Friends of the Earth, Lucas Ross is dropping by on the big oil bailout and how fracking could be next. Plus, Arthur West with the Washington League for Increased Transparency and Ethics is suing Fox so-called news for endangering Americans by calling the coronavirus a hoax. Can he win? The Science Revolution is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Donald Trump tweets a call to uh, fire Fauci over the weekend. Well, I was on Jake Tapper's show, CNN. He basically pinned down Fauci and said, uh, if we had started doing testing earlier, if we had put some of these uh, shelter-in-place orders into place earlier, would it have saved lives? And Fauci says, obviously it would have. And so (laughs) Trump wants to fire him. So anyway, let's pick up your phone calls here. Lamont in Indianapolis. Hey, Lamont, what's on your mind today? Well, I want to piggyback on what you're saying. You know, I'm a big geek, and I watch um, X-Men, and I don't know if you follow it, but they have a villain by the name of Apocalypse, and he feels that, Mm -hmm. you know, the mutant race is more superior than the regular humans. And he has this saying, the survival of the fittest. And I just feel like that's the way Donald Trump and the rich Republicans are thinking, you know, that whoever makes it out of this in the end, you know, oh, good luck to you. Well, you know, we're all right. And, and, and their policies and his thinking of this whole, it, it doesn't seem like he just even worried about the little people. Yeah, it's called social Darwinism and goes back hundreds of years. It was used to justify white supremacy and still is. But it was, you know, one of the principal justifications, you know, for slavery and things like that. It just this whole idea that there is a superior race. I mean, this was Hitler's whole shtick, right? That, you know, some people are superior to other people and therefore the other people, you know, just should die off because they're inferior. I mean, just listen to what Bill O'Reilly said. That's kind of like what his thinking what did he was. Say? Well, when he said on, uh, he was on Sean Hannity radio show last week and he said a lot of these people that are dying were basically uh, had something else going on with them or pretty much in their twilight years anyway. So, you know, no loss. Right. It's, it's out there. Yeah, they were going to die anyway, right? You know, uh, yeah. p- people who have high blood pressure, people who have diabetes, people who are obese, people who are old, they're going to die anyway. And yeah, you know, old people, you can't escape death. People who right. have these uh, so-called pre-existing conditions or chronic health problems, they're going to die younger. But that doesn't mean that we should put them out to pasture tomorrow. <laughs> this is just nuts. But it is. That's this is a lot you've... You have absolutely put your finger on it. This is the survival of the fittest. And typically it is preached by people who believe themselves to be among the fittest. And, you know, as Dr. Fauci said, when Trump proposed this, he said, but people will die. And, you know, I don't think that Trump really much gives a rat's ass about whether people die or not. Lamont, thank you for that. That was brilliant. Mary in Las Vegas. Hey, Mary, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thank you for keeping me sane and informed. I'd like to add someone else to the list who probably alerted Trump to the virus. And could it be uh, Moscow Mitch's wife? I mean, her family lives in China. She must have had some inkling as to what was going on early on. I'm guessing, yeah, Elaine Chow is her name, and she's the Secretary of Transportation. And her father and mother own a massive shipping company that ships stuff all over the world. But they're based in Taiwan. She's Taiwanese, not Chinese. I mean, you know, ethnically, it's very similar or the same, but Taiwan is a very different country. It's a democratic republic. But I'm guessing that, yeah, sure, she knew about it. But the fact of the matter is, Mary, that Donald Trump was being warned, as well as the administration, but now the New York Times has the receipts. Donald Trump himself was warned back in November, December, January, February, and March of exactly what was going on. And Donald Trump just said, eh, you know, we'll do herd immunity. We'll survival the fittest. That's our plan. Mary, thank you for the call. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. I just wanted to say, you know, as far as this herd immunity goes, you know, this is a deep, deep topic, all right? But I think it's a, it's a legitimate conversation. But I, I just want to go back real quick to, you know, this Dunning-Kruger effect. And I know a lot of people have commented on it. You yourself have commented on it. But I just want to capture one thing real quick. You know Jefferson, who guest hosts for you every now and again? He Jefferson made this comment Smith, yes. one time. Jefferson Smith. He said sortition. Now, I did not know what so- – I never heard the word sortition before. Okay? So the first thing I thought defensively is Jefferson made this word up. I don't know it, so it <laughs> must be made up. 
Now, does that mean I have? Does that mean I have Dunning Kruger? No, not really. Even though that's awkward and unfortunate, and I learned that I'm not as smart as I think. All right, that is a normal reaction. Donald Trump, if he is in fact suffering from Dunning Kruger, when he hears a word or when a word is said that he does not know, he does not hear it. All right, he does not hear it. And then, or he just makes up some. You know, Donald Trump would say, "Well, that's that's what they do in the post office when they sort your mail," and he would just assert it with absolute confidence. Yes, and let's say someone's close to Donald Trump or someone's close to a person with Dunning-Kruger, and they, tr- you know, they try to baby talk him, you know, they, which I think is what Ivanka might actually be doing. They will, they're, they're running a great risk, all right, because they will appear condescending and even hostile to the person suffering from Dunning-Kruger at, at a certain point, okay? They will, they will appear hostile, and there will be animosity there. All right. right. For people who don't know what we're talking about, Dave, let me just interject here. Dunning-Kruger is a psychological syndrome where people believe themselves to be highly competent when, in fact, they are massively incompetent. And typically, it's not limited to one particular subject area. Am I accurately characterizing that? And what does sortition mean, by the way? Uh, sortition is what Jefferson was talking about in the caucuses process. It is, it's the way they select people during, you know, the oh, caucuses. Yeah. Okay, if you don't make 15%, <laughs> et cetera. Okay, I, you know, I didn't, yeah. I've heard the word, but I, no. I couldn't, couldn't pull up a definition for you. Well, and the reason why this is so, this Dunning-Kruger effect is so dangerous, you know, when it comes to a a biological organism or a virus or a pathogen, whatever you want to say, is because it develops in very unpredictable ways because of our general lack of knowledge, (laughs) you know, scientific knowledge. And the problem I see with, with conservatives, even though I think you nailed it where you said when you were talking about containment, I think containment is obviously scientifically the better way to go. There's a couple of problems there with conservatives in general. You know, and, I, and I've kind of noticed it with the attacks on Joe Biden lately about how they're portraying Joe Biden as some sort of like um, dictatorial figure. All right? right. It doesn't understand the Constitution. I just read an article about it this weekend. Uh, the problem this is called is, projection. Is, yes, they're projecting. And and the problem is, is it costs a lot of money, long story short, to do containment. They're not going to want to yeah. do it. They're going to want to default back to prayer and this, this concept of social Darwinism, let the weak perish where the strong... No, I, I, I get it, Dave. And, and they're already there. Dave, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark. Yeah, hi, Tom. I was listening to your uh, explanation of this mitigation process you were laying out. And the fact that, it's, uh, that this virus is overwhelmingly taking out minorities and poor people... And people with, you know, preconditions, and a lot of that can be genetic. It kind of sounds to me like the rich got together in the Western countries and devised a little Nazi uh, superior race program. You could argue that if you could argue that a dimension of this is essentially eugenics. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, because, you know, they know who it's going to take out. They probably already had bean counters, you know actuaries figure out percentage-wise, you know, how many of each group will die. Oh, I can see them sitting around going, okay, who's the most expensive group of Americans to sustain? Old people. They, you know, they get sick, they get expensive illnesses. You know, most, in fact, I've seen statistics, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact percentage, but some overwhelming percentage of your lifetime healthcare expenses are spent in the last 10 years of life. So let's blow off those people. Who's the second most expensive group of people to keep alive in America? People who have, you know, who are seriously obese, people who have, you know, significantly high blood pressure, people who are suffering from diabetes, whether it's type one or type two. Those are the principal, you know, there's, there's others as well. People who are undergoing cancer treatment, chemotherapy, things like that. These groups, that four categories, I'm sure there's more, but that, those four categories probably represent a disproportionate share of our total healthcare spending in the United States. So if you can kill off the old people quickly and you can kill off the quote weak people quickly, then not only do you have the strong healthy people left, but you also have eliminated, you know, probably 20, 30, 40% of your national healthcare expense. 
So yeah, Mark, it makes perfect sense. It, it, you know, maybe we should call it eugenics. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Instead of mitigation, it's a giant eugenics experiment. Except, frankly, that would require Trump to be smart enough to think of this. Although Stephen Miller wouldn't put it past him. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Defying Hitler by Sebastian Hafner, a memoir. This is from Chapter 17, about a little more than a third of the way into the book. At first, the revolution only gave the impression of being an historical event like any other, a matter for the press that might just possibly have some effect on the public mood. The Nazis celebrate January 30th as their day of revolution. They are wrong. There was no revolution on January 30th, 1933, just a change of government. Hitler became chancellor, by no means the Fuhrer of the Nazi regime. The cabinet contained only two Nazis apart from him. He swore an oath of allegiance to the Weimar Constitution. The general opinion was that it was not the Nazis who had won, but the bourgeois parties of the right who had captured, in quotes, the Nazis and held all the key positions in the government. In constitutional terms, events had taken a much more conventional, unrevolutionary course than most of what had happened during the previous six months. Outwardly, also, the day had no revolutionary aspects, unless one considers a Nazi torchlight procession through Wilhelmstrasse or a minor gunfight in the suburbs that night as signs of a revolution. For most of us outsiders, the experience of January 30th, 1933, was that of reading the papers and the emotions we felt while we were doing so. 
The morning headline was, Hitler called to president. That produced a certain nervous, impotent irritation. Hitler had been called to the president in August and November. He had been offered the vice chancellorship and then the chancellorship. Both times he had set impossible conditions, and both times there had been solemn declarations. Never again. Each time, never again had lasted exactly three months. Hitler's opponents in Germany at that time suffered from a compulsive urge to offer him everything he wanted, indefatigably, and at an even cheaper price, indeed to press it upon him. It's the same now with his opponents outside Germany. Again and again, this appeasement was formally renounced, and again and again, it gaily reappeared at the crucial moment. Just so today. Then, as now, one's only hope was Hitler's own unreasonableness. Would it not sooner or later exhaust the patience of his opponents? Then, as now, it became apparent that their patience knew no bounds. At midday, the headline said, Hitler makes impossible demands. We nodded, half reassured. It was only too credible. It would have gone against his nature to ask for less than too much. Perhaps the cup had once more passed from us. Hitler, the last defense against Hitler. At about 5 o'clock, the evening papers arrived. Cabinet of National Unity informed Hitler Reichschancellor. I don't know what the general reaction was. For about a minute, mine was completely correct. Icy horror. Certainly this had been a possibility for a long time. You had to reckon with it. Nevertheless, it was so bizarre, so incredible to read it now in black and white. Hitler, Reich's Chancellor. For a moment, I physically sensed the man's odor of blood and filth, the nauseating approach of a man-eating animal, its foul, sharp claws in my face. Then I shook the sensation off, tried to smile, started to consider, and found many reasons for reassurance. That evening, I discussed the prospects of the new government with my father. We agreed it had a good chance of doing a lot of damage, but not much chance of surviving very long. A deeply reactionary government with Hitler as its mouthpiece. Apart from this, it did not really differ much from the two governments that had succeeded Brunings. Even with the Nazis, it would not have a majority in the Reichstag. Of course, that could always be dissolved, but the government had a clear majority of the population against it, in particular the working class which would probably go communist now that the Social Democrats had completely discredited themselves. One could prohibit the communists, but that would only make them more dangerous. In the meantime, the government would be likely to implement reactionary social and cultural measures with some anti-Semitic additions to please Hitler. That would not attract any of its opponents to its side. Foreign policy would probably be a matter of banging the table. There might be an attempt to rearm that would automatically add the outside world to the 60% of the home population who were against the Hitler government. Besides, who were the people who had suddenly started voting Nazi in the last three years? Misguided ignoramuses, for the most part, victims of propaganda, a fluctuating mass that would fall apart at the first disappointment. No, all things considered, this government was not a cause for alarm. The only question was what would come after it. It was possible that they would drive the country to civil war. The communists were capable of going on the attack before a prohibition against them came into force. The next day, this turned out to be the general opinion of the intelligent press. It is curious how plausible an argument it is, even today, when we know what came next. How could things turn out so completely different? Perhaps it was just because we were all so certain that they could not do so, and relied on that with far too much confidence. So we neglected to consider that it might, if worse came to worse, be necessary to prevent the disaster from happening. Through the whole of February 1933, everything that happened remained a matter for the press. In other words, it took place in an arena that would lose all reality for 99% of the population in the moment there were no newspapers. Admittedly, enough occurred in that arena. The Reichstag was dissolved, then in a flagrant breach of the Constitution, Hindenburg also dissolved the Prussian regional parliament. There were fast and furious changes of personnel in the civil service, the book defying Hitler. Robbie in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Robbie, what's up? Just a smoky morning here in Portland. Do you see the smoke? There's a lot of smoke, some type of fire. Anyway, I'll get to my Yeah, thing I here. see the haze. It I is, don't know where it's coming from, though. Yeah, I just, I've been delivering all over the city. And uh, anyway, I, I, besides that, I wanted to bring up, kind of adding on to this, I, this is they're, they're turning this into a genocide on poor people um, and it's happening very quickly because you know two months ago this was tearing through rich people the elite you know Prince 
uh, Charles, I believe, you know, they don't grocery shop yeah. down here. Now it's starting to hit the poverty, and now it's unproportionately killing African Americans. And one thing that I wanted to share is this is a reflection of before COVID-19, there was already higher death rates amongst people giving birth of color, people who go in sure. for, I don't know, heart attacks. Black people were already dying at much higher rates than, you know, their white counterparts. So I think this is just an amplification of the hospitals and their treatment. You know, I mean, considering they might not have the best health insurance, they're kind of putting off going to the hospital until it's too late. And then there's already no hospital beds. Anyway, what I'm seeing is a genocide on poor people. Clearly, they said already they don't care. You know, I mean, it's patriotic to die for your economy is what their, you know, the Republican rhetoric is. But, yeah, I truly believe that they actually, I'm going to say, you know, it's actually unfortunate Boris Johnson got discharged from the ICU. You know, I was hoping that it would have been able to have the same type of detrimental effects on the elite class as it would have the poor. But now it's clear to me they just think that they can buy their safety. That's why they want us to, you know, go back to work. And then they just think if you can make enough money, you can, you know, pay for your own doctor. Well, they don't want to go back to work, Robbie. I, you know, I guarantee That's you, right. the CEO of, well, I can't guarantee what Jeff Bezos is doing, but, you know, a lot of these big companies where they're asking their employees to go back to work, the senior management is not. And yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, those diseases that I listed earlier, cancer, obesity, diabetes, and hypertension, and the latter two usually arising out of obesity, those are wildly overrepresented among our poor population. In, in large part, so many of them live in essentially food deserts, and because fast food, which causes obesity, is actually, in many cases, cheaper than, than preparing your own food. So you've got an entire poor population that has been thrown into a health crisis over the last 40 years by Reaganomics, and well, really over the last several hundred years by you know systemic, institutionalized discriminatory practices and and whatnot and you have a disease coming along that's going to hit that population disproportionately and so of course trump and stephen miller they're saying oh yeah well just go back to work no problem and and you know we will weed out of the gene pool those people who are poor you know well, hey tom uh, if i can make one last point hey tom can i make one last point quickly L.A. Times put out a article saying that the army is seizing hospital supplies. Have you read that? Yeah, and it's not just the army. FEMA has been seizing hospital supplies as well. As they're being shipped from wholesalers to hospitals, they're interdicting these shipments. And in some cases, the companies are stripping the logos off so people won't know what they are, so they can't do it. Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Mike in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Mike, your thoughts? Hey, Tom. Well, I think the, the, the whole eugenics thing is, is real plausible, but I think their math could be way off. As I was sharing with your screener, you know, the, the deal here is there's some reports that have been eking out of China that people who were sick and then tested okay got sick again, and some have died. So yeah, what they're... limited data. But right. So far, actually, those, the big study on that is not out of China. It's out of South Korea. And it was 81 people, as I recall. And it wasn't that they got sick again. It was that they were testing positive again. And one of the problems that we have with these tests is that the virus doesn't show up just in your normal nose or in your mouth, although there was a piece in the British Medical Journal over the weekend saying that because the coronavirus typically first anchors itself to the back of the throat where there's a lot of angiotensin receptors, which is the point on the cell where the virus enters the cell, that we should be able to just swab throats. Nobody's been doing that. Instead, what they're trying to do is this, what's called a nasal pharyngeal swab, which means basically you're going into the sinus. So you've got to shove that swab, not into the nose, but beyond the nose, up into the skull, into the holes that are our sinuses, and get a sample from inside there. And that's extremely painful. That's why you can't do it to yourself. You will always jerk back and away from it. And uh, therefore, 
they're getting some of the reports, some of the studies I've seen suggest that as many as 30% of these tests are false negatives, but they're suspecting that probably three quarters or more of those false negatives are not because the test produced a false negative, but rather because the person collecting the sample didn't shove the swab far enough up the person's nose because they were afraid of injuring them or the person was protesting or the person jerked away. But, you know, if it turns out that this virus can hang out, can lurk for a while and then, you know, reflare the way that Lyme disease does, for example, or hepatitis C can do this also, then we've got a whole nother level of problem. You are absolutely right, Mike. Mike, thanks a lot for the call. Anthony in Detroit. Hey, Anthony, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I just want to re-raise and keeping everyone's top of mind, you know, how they put the environmental regulations by the wayside and the reporting information and whatnot. It's just a concern of mine. Yes. So. Yeah, they've shut down the EPA for all practical purposes. They've given a waiver to all the big chemical companies. If you've got a thousand, you know, pounds of or a thousand tons of of some corrosive or destructive chemical stored in a in a, a temporary storage bin next to a river, just open the valve, pour it in, no problem. If your smokestack is putting poison in the air. Yeah, cool. You can go for it. I mean, that's what's happening. Mm-hmm. Anthony, spot on. Thank you, Josh in Portland. Hey, Josh, what's up? Hi, Tom. First time caller. Pretty long time listener. I live in my car. I work. It's a Lexus, so I guess that means uh, I'm living in class. (laughs) uh, They say if you own a car, you're one of the, you're in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. And I'm thinking, well, does that include if you live in it? Right. Definitely relevant. Well, that puts you in the top 10% of homeless people. Yeah, well, for sure. And I was walking down the street in Portland, and I can't go to the gym because the gym is where I shower. Now that's closed. I can't wash my hands. I have to shop pretty much every day. So I'm touching everything. I like to buy fruit, so that's really a drag since I know fruit probably gets touched more than any other food because everybody's always squeezing it. I'm really bummed that Bernie got pushed out. I think he, he got pushed out by... It's just proof that when you want somebody to lose, you can do it. It reminds me of when Ron Paul was running. If all the people who wanted to vote for Ron Paul would have, Ron Paul would have won, not Mitt Romney. So instead, they got Mitt Romney, and we got so Joe Josh. What's the, the what's Romney the point of, the of your call? That's pretty much it. Right. I'm homeless. You, just, you want to I wish that story. we had a better okay. person running to take care of that. And because of this COVID-19 thing, I don't think it's going to really get pushed up. You know, like everybody, when I listen to conservative radio, they talk about Rahm Emanuel and has never let a crisis go to waste. And we're in a crisis right now. And it's, it's not being, it's not going to waste, but it's going in the opposite direction that I would like it to. It's not power to the people. It's, the people at McDonald's are still getting COVID-19 and still being told to serve food and not wearing masks. I, I get all that, Josh, and, and, I, and I am equally horrified by it, and I think that it's going to change. I really do after November. Mark in McHenry, Illinois. Hey, Mark. Hi, Tom. Just briefly, I, I just feel that America has become a moral and ethical desert. And it began with the neo- neoliberalism of, of the, the Thatcher-Reagan era. And Trump is the natural zenith of, of where we have arrived. And I feel that the platform of the Democrats should be that once we, we get a Democrat president and, and get the Congress back, we will erase the Trump administration and everything that he's tried to do as, as he's tried to do with Obama, including impeaching unqualified and fanatical judges. Yeah, and I would take this all the way back to Reagan. We need to roll back the Reagan tax cuts. We need to go back to a 74% top income tax rate and a 33% rate for corporations. Corporation, when Reagan came into office, a third of the federal budget was was funded by corporate taxes. Now it's six, well, actually three years ago it was 6%. I don't know what it is now with the Trump tax cuts. It's probably down to 3%. Mark, spot on. Thank you very much. A moral desert. What a great phrase. Hi, for the Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from The Crash of 2016. This is from Chapter 5. Chapter 5 is titled, Reagan Kidnapped the Jetsons. 
1966 article, Time magazine looked toward the future and what the rise of automation would mean for average working Americans. It concluded, quote, by 2000, the machines will be producing so much that everyone in the U.S. will, in effect, be independently wealthy. With government benefits, even non-working families will have, by one estimate, an annual income of thirty dollars to $40,000. How to use leisure meaningfully will be a major problem. End of quote. And that was thirty dollars to $40,000 in 1966 dollars, which would roughly be $199,000 to $260,000 in 2010 dollars. Ask anybody who was a teenager or older in the 1960s, this was a big sales pitch for automation and the coming computer age. There was even a cartoon show about it, The Jetsons. And everybody looked forward to the day when increased productivity from robots, computers, and automation would translate into fewer hours worked, or more pay, or both, for every American worker. And there was good logic behind the idea. The premise was simple. With better technology, companies would become more efficient. They'd be able to make more things in less time. Revenues would skyrocket, and and Americans would bring home higher and higher paychecks, all the while working fewer and fewer hours. So by the year 2000, according to Time magazine in 1966, we would enter what was then referred to as the leisure society. Futurists speculated that the biggest problem facing America in that Jetsons future of the year 2000 would be just how the heck everyone would use all their extra leisure time. And of course, there were also those who worried about what kind of degeneracy would emerge when a nation has lots of money and free time on its hands. Neither happened. And it didn't happen because Ronald Reagan stole the leisure society from us and handed it over to the economic royalists. In 1981, the royalists went right to work, taking down that first pillar on which FDR rebuilt the American middle class, progressive taxation. Taking advantage of the oil shock crisis, neoliberal shock troopers immediately ushered through a revolutionary change in the tax code with the Economic Recovery Act of 1981. The first major piece of legislation signed by Reagan has slashed the top marginal income tax rate from 70% to 50%, cutting estate taxes for wealthy businesses and slashing capital gains and corporate profit taxes. Reagan succeeded a few years later in dropping the top income tax rate even more to 28%, where it hadn't been since the Great Depression. It was the second largest tax cut in history, and it was nearly identical to the largest tax cut ever. Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon's in the 1920s, the one that created the bubble known as the Roaring Twenties, which eventually burst in 1929. The great forgetting had certainly arrived. The economic mistakes of the 1920s were coming back around. And again, the influx of all this hot money in the market, coupled with a robust deregulation agenda throughout the 1980s and 90s, would trigger a series of painful financial panics. The reason why the Leisure Society could be imagined by Time magazine is because ever since 1900, working people's wages tracked evenly with working people's productivity. So as productivity continued to rise, which was likely due to increased automation and better technology, so too would everyone's wages. And the glue holding this logic together was the current top marginal income tax rate. In 1966, when the Time article was written, the top marginal income tax rate was 70%. And what that effectively did was encourage CEOs to keep more money in their businesses, to invest in new technology, to pay their workers more, to hire new workers and expand. After all, what's the point of sucking millions and millions of dollars out of your business if it's going to be taxed at 70%? According to this line of reasoning, if businesses were to suddenly become more profitable and efficient thanks to automation, then that money would flow throughout the businesses, raising everyone's standard of living, increasing everyone's leisure time. But when Reagan dropped that top tax rate down to 28%, everything changed, as you can see in this graph. Now, as businesses became more profitable, there was a far greater incentive for CEOs to pull those profits out of the company and pocket them because they were suddenly paying an incredibly low tax rate. And that's exactly what they did. All those new profits, thanks to automation, that were supposed to go to everyone, giving us all higher paychecks and more time off, instead went to the top, to the economic royalists. Suddenly, the symmetry in the productivity wages chart broke down. Productivity continued increasing because technology continued improving, but wages stayed flat. And again, since higher and higher profits could be sucked out of the company and taxed at lower and lower levels, there was no incentive to reduce the number of hours everyone worked. In the 1950s, before that Time magazine article predicted the leisure society, uh, before that article was written, the average American working in manufacturing put in about 42 hours of work a week. Today, the average American working in manufacturing puts in about 40 hours a week. This means that despite the fact that productivity has increased 400% since 1950, 
Americans are working on average only two fewer hours a week. If productivity is four times higher than in 1950, then Americans should be able to work four times less, or just 10 hours a week, to afford the same 1950s lifestyle when a family of four could get by on just one paycheck, own a home, own a car, put their kids through school, take a vacation every now and then, and retire comfortably. But all that was wiped out by Reaganomics and Ronald Reagan. And that's just the beginning of the setup for the crash of 2016. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 